Welcome to Open to Hope Radio with your host, mother-daughter team, Dr. Gloria and Dr. Heidi Horsley. This show is brought to you by the Open to Hope Foundation with the mission of helping people find hope after loss. This show has been edited for your convenience. Now, Open to Hope Radio. So John E. Welshans is our guest today, and we're going to talk with him about healing relationships. John Welshans has been helping people deal with dramatic life change and loss for over 35 years. He is a highly respected contemporary spiritual leader and is the founder and president of Open Heart Seminars. His books include When Prayers Aren't Answered, Awakening from Grief, and his recently released book, One Soul, One Love, One Heart, The Sacred Path to Healing All Relationships. Welcome to the show, John. Oh, thank you. It's great to be with both of you. It's great to have you here, John, and especially, as I said, I feel like it's a real gift to our audience this year, uh, going into the new year, because I know that people are wondering, they've made it through Christmas, and by the way, everybody out there, congratulations. You've gotten through the holidays, which is not an easy feat if you've had a loss and you ought to pat yourself on the back and think about what you're going to do to move forward or to get in touch or whatever, and we're hoping we can do that today. Well, John, how did you get into being a spiritual teacher? Uh, well, that's kind of an uncomfortable title, but so be it. <laughs> <laughs> that's what I said about you, John. You know, I know, I you know. Go. No, not really. <laughs> well, uh, actually... Um, I'll try to make the story short. It started when I was three years old and uh, had a miraculous healing from polio. Mm. And that really got my attention because it made me realize that um, although I lived miraculously, I might not have, and I wasn't expected to. So it got my attention in the sense that I realized that, you know, people can die at any age. And if I was given the gift of life at that point, then I really needed to use it in a way that somehow thanked the universe or God or the creator or whatever you want to call it for for the gift I'd been given. You know, were you in bed and were you so you couldn't move? Or, you yeah, know? I actually, when I had polio, it was one of the last cases. It was 1953. And just before, I, actually, while I was in the hospital, the Salk vaccine was certified for use and began to be given to children. Oh, my gosh. That's wow. amazing. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the hope that our audience has had out there. That, that's the thing. We hold hope because things like this happen. There is a child that was there when the vaccine was done. And, you know, so people say to me, well, you know, if they've got terminal illness, you know, it shouldn't have been that hard for the family or they should have been prepared or anticipatory grief. And I'm like, people don't give up hope. Do they, John? Well, they shouldn't. Um, you know, they need not. I have seen over the years that I've worked with people who are terminally ill and people who are grieving, you know, I've seen incredibly miraculous things happen. And I've also seen times when people have an unreal expectation for something mm-hmm. to happen. So I think that the the best strategy is that old uh, strategy of um, anticipating uh, the best and preparing for the worst and sort of going down the middle road in life and kind of, you know, hope that things will get better and, on the other hand, maybe they won't. And in either case, the important thing is that we live fully every day and appreciate the relationships we have every day. So, John, I've just had a child die, a spouse die, a mother die, 
and we'll be talking about some of those emails in the next segment of the show. But I'm suffering. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm really suffering. I'm right. Uh, is there something that you call it when people are really in that that terrible spot? Well, we tend to call it grief. You know, we call it um, meeting the harsh realities of human life. And I think the hardest part for us is when we have the sense that this wasn't supposed to happen. And, um, you know, that is the result of many, many decades of sort of unwise cultural training that we've gotten. We're not really prepared. And... um, you know, we, we're doing on-the-job training. We're being given a 300-pound weight to lift when we really haven't trained with a 5-pound weight. That's a great analogy for yeah, that. Like that. Well, the thing is, we want to redo it, too. Yeah. I mean, we, we're we so bad. <laughs> we're so so stuck in it that um, we're, we're spending the first, I was, spending the first weeks trying to figure out how you can redo it. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I mean, you just kind of have to expect that the mind is going to be all over the map. You know, it's not going to be rational. When the heart is broken, it is so frightening and feels so alone. You know, I remember Elizabeth Kubler-Ross and Mother Teresa both always said that they felt, and they were two people who obviously worked mostly with terminal illness and grief, they said they felt the the most difficult experience for a human being is to feel alone. Mm-hmm. And so what you're doing with this radio program and your foundation and so on is so extraordinary because we're not alone in loss. Every human being has loss. Every human being has sadness and suffering. Now, you may look out at the moment you're experiencing a loss and say, well, you know, my child died and yet all my friends' children are happy and healthy. Or, you know, my husband died suddenly, and um, I look out and my friends all have happy, healthy husbands. Right. But overall, yeah. you know, if you examine humanity as a whole, um, these kinds of experiences are happening every day. And um, that doesn't make them less painful, but it means that we're not alone in having to bear the pain all by ourselves. Absolutely. The the two things that we're hearing, right, Heidi, are alone and that I'm not crazy early on. Is mm-hmm. that your thought, Heidi? Absolutely. And one other thing I was going to say, which you, you just touched on previously, is that, you know, I, I initially heard people would say to me, Heidi, you've got to go on with your life. Scott wouldn't want you to suffer. He wouldn't want you to be in pain. He'd want you to live your life fully. And, you know, I knew that intellectually. Sometimes our heads know that, but our hearts aren't ready to go down those roads yet. Right. Our hearts aren't, aren't ready. That's right. That's, and the, the heart has to move at its own pace. Mm. You know, it really can't be rushed into some kind of awakening. The, I mean, the first thing when I first studied with Elizabeth Kubler-Ross back in the 70s, you know, we were beginning to realize at that point that how cruel the culture was in terms of giving people this false expectation that you should be over a profound loss in your life within a specified period of time. Mm-hmm. And then we start to understand that, you know, in some sense, you don't get over it. You learn to expand your life and your ability to love in other ways so that that loss ultimately perhaps becomes a tool for teaching and helping you to grow in life 
it's a, not a growth that you want, <laughs> but, you right. know, I mean, it's, there really is no other choice. There, the, really, the only choices when you've had a great loss in life are, you know, you either just give up and say, well, this is terrible and I'll never be happy again, or you reach out and find a way to get through it and work with it. And, and the fact that people are listening to this show right now means that they've made the second choice. They're trying to find a way to get through it. Absolutely. Right, so you continue bonds with those that you've loved and lost and, and learn how to reinvest in life again. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I looked at my, when Scott died, um, I, I was actually in the field of grief and loss. I was a clinical nurse specialist. I covered the whole hospital at the University of Rochester. I taught. I knew all about grief and loss. I worked with families uh, who had lost. And, man, when it happened to me, I'll tell you what, it was like an explosion. And I, I called it a a tantrum. I mm. I think I, my whole body, my whole world, I threw a tantrum. I wanted him back, mm. and and I think it's beyond rational thought. The it's whole ab- body wants him back. Yeah, absolutely beyond rational thought. And you know, to try and say in those moments, well, you need to be rational, is is really not very compassionate to yourself. You know, I mean, I think that uh, in those moments, we need the opportunity to throw a tantrum and be angry and, and feel all of the feelings that arise because trying to push them away is only going to prolong the process. And I hate it when people, I always hate it at the hospital, but when people get handed a Valium. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, let's have the experience. I used to say yeah. to people, you know, before my son died, but, but I still believed it when he did, and that is uh, to the staff, put him in a quiet room. What are they going to do? They're going to roll on the floor, hit their head on the wall. I mean, what do you think is going to happen? They're going to get tired. Mm. Right. Well, I'm being handed a volume with the with the idea of you need to calm down. Exactly. The message. That's a good hiding. Right. With that message, rather than you need to experience the grief, it's okay. You need to work through it and experience all the emotions. I mean, the how good, the bad, and the be, ugly. How different it would be if, in the culture, we had the model rather than here is a medicine for you to take to calm you down. Let me just put my arms around you and hold you. Let me hold your hand while we go through this together. And I love it when the staff says, "Can I get you a drink of water?" Uh-huh. <laughs> they don't say they don't say stop and you'll be all right. They say, "Let me get you a drink of water. Here's a right. chair. There's somebody here with you." Yeah, you know. Yeah, and and just being with that grief, you know, it's a really holy place to be with those grieving people. I'm so glad you said that because it's uh, it's extraordinary. Um, I mean, it's actually the same thing that I often hear people say if they've been with a loved one at the moment that they die. Um, I often hear people say, unless, you know, it was a violent death, which is heartbreaking in a whole different realm of experience, but if it was, you know, due to a protracted illness, I often hear the family members say, you know, it was so peaceful. At the moment they died, it just felt like a holy experience. Right. And, and being actually with, uh, I run a compassionate friends uh, group, and being with people whose kids have just died or family members or grandchildren have died, it's a whole, those people are holy people. I mean, they are, they're stripped of everything, and you are sitting with um, really angels. Saints and angels, yeah. yeah. It, it's an amazing experience. Well, uh, and even if you've worked with people that have had trauma, I mean, I've been working with 9-11 families for the last eight years, the thing that is so inspirational is watching the journey and watching people find hope again after horrific loss. Yeah, it's so absolutely. Inspiring. Well, yeah, when they come to the group, they've taken the first step. So I guess mm-hmm. that you're right, Heidi. That's why it is you can see people moving. 
And it, right. it's an amazing Well, John, uh, tell people how they can get your book and about your website. And you can also mention your seminar that you do. Great. Well, the book is One Soul, One Love, One Heart, The Sacred Path to Healing All Relationships. And my name is spelled, it's John Welshons, W-E-L-S-H-O-N-S. The book is available through all traditional booksellers online and bookstores as well. If they don't have it in stock, they can order it. It's published by New World Library. My website is onesoulonelove.com. And uh, I do a variety of different workshops, uh, which are listed on the schedule in the, on the website. And uh, if someone who is listening who's part of an organization that would like to schedule a workshop, there's information about those uh, and how to do it and how to get in touch with me. And um, I do workshops all over the country. Uh, one is based on the first book, which was called Awakening from Grief, Finding the Way Back to Joy. And uh, the second book was When Prayers Aren't Answered. There's a workshop about that, which is basically, you know, if God is all-loving and all-merciful and there is a God, then how do these terrible things happen in our lives? Mm-hmm. And uh, then the new workshop, which is primarily about healing relationships. All right, John, now you've thrown it out there because I am sitting out there listening to my uh, computer and I am saying, he just he just gave me the question I want to know. Mm-hmm, me too. Yeah. What what about God when he's not answering what we want? Uh, <laughs> well, um, you know it's interesting. Um, I think that uh, in addition to many other almost delusional ideas that we get in this culture, one of them is that um, that. If we're good and we pray and we go to church and mm-hmm. or to temple or do whatever we do, um, and we've been kind and generous and so on, that that means that we're going to get everything we want in life and everything's going to go smoothly and it'll all be wonderful because God will be pleased with us. And you know that just isn't true. You know, I mean, it's very interesting to see that um, I think ultimately. The short answer to your question is that God doesn't necessarily protect us from difficult things happening, but what we do have is we're given by God or the universe or whoever as standard equipment when we're born. We're given everything we need to handle anything that happens to us. Hmm. Now, for the most part, we haven't cultivated those tools. You know, it's what we were talking about before the break about not being prepared for the inevitable losses and disappointments that are going to be part of human life. So, um, But some of them are so hideous. Yeah, aren't they? I mean, some of them are so beyond the beyond. We just yeah. had a... Uh, we have an email here from a woman who um, said she's having trouble with Christmas time. Let me see if I can find it right now. Um, I can't think of her name, but I'll, I'll tell you what she said. She said, uh, it's Christmas time. I had three kids die in a house fire uh, mm-hmm. in 19, um, I think she said it was 97. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's been a little while, and but she said uh, Christmas time is hell for me because I just remember the fire and seeing them and that kind of thing. It's so hideous for her. and. Uh, you know, getting through this time of year. Yeah, yeah. Well, <clears throat> you know, there, there's a certain way that our minds tend to torture us. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it, I hear those kinds of stories so often. In fact, I told one uh, in Awakening from Grief, the first book, 
uh, of a mother whose son was killed in a violent car accident. And um, she just kept replaying the accident in her mind. She hadn't seen it, but she could visualize it and visualize the accident scene with her son lying dead. Uh, and, you know, there comes a point at which she, this woman called me up after two years and she said, you know, I've been seeing this in my mind every day, like twice a day. I can't get this hideous image out of my mind. And I said, you know, at some point you have to realize that you're torturing yourself with that because it only happened to your child once. Mm -hmm. And it's happened to you every day, twice a day for, you know, two years. I mean, that's like almost 1,500 times it happened to you. So, um, you know, sometimes there's a certain kind of cruelty that arises out of a certain form of survivor guilt which um, is something that is almost inevitable for a parent to experience because a parent believes that their job is to protect their children. Well, you know, the other, the other thing, isn't there a habit, too? I mean, a habit of getting that feeling, that intense feeling, and if you don't, the mind has some kind of a habit, it seems. That's right, yeah. It's a habit, it's a, a thought pattern, a habit of thought. That um, I mean, it's also... That's the moment in your life when your, your reality changed irretrievably. You know, that there was a moment in your life when the universe changed for you forever. Right. So, so, John, if I have, if I'm this woman, if I have a thought about maybe the way my child or my sibling died, and I want to get it out of my head, I'm tired of entertaining it, do I just confront it and say, go away, thought, I'm not going to think about you? Or how do I... How do I move forward away well, from that thought? Generally, resisting anything it usually makes it stronger. So my recommendation is to take that thought and do whatever you can to, instead of continuing to face the hopelessness and the horror of the situation, to bring love and compassion into the situation. In other words, you can't change the fact that your children or your child died at that moment. Mm-hmm. But you can re-perceive in the sense that you could say, how would I have liked, if, if I couldn't save them, how would I have liked to be with them, to give them love, to give them comfort, to bless them and tell them how much I love them as they were leaving this world. You know, to bring a, to, to instead of feeling the finality and the hopelessness and the horror of that situation exclusively also bring love and compassion into it so that you're sending that to your children. Even if you're, you're talking to the place in your own heart where they live on. And that kind of reprograms the brain a little bit, it seems to me. You know, what I found myself doing is um, I, did, I, I was doodling. I was taking some classes. I went into a Ph.D. program because I couldn't deal with the heavy-duty work on the surgical service. And uh, I found myself doodling and drawing during class some pretty graphic pictures of Scott in his coffin and, you know, that kind of thing. And I think that helped me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So maybe uh, drawing or, or journaling or talking, or do you think that reprograms the brain? Absolutely. I think anything that, um, that helps us to confront reality and... Con- but confront it with compassion. It's in, in other words, 
that just looking at the harsh reality of it, um, the reason it's terrifying is because I think that in that experience, I'm not going to feel love. I'm going to, it will be so overwhelmingly horrible. But the truth of the matter is that if you can stay connected to your heart, that's the place where we have the resources to handle anything that happens to us. And so if you focus on, okay, I keep having this terrible thought, but let's say that the moment after that, I emphasize that I'm sending love to my child or to my children or to my spouse or that I'm going into the place of love and compassion, that's where we start to feel alive again. That's great. And I like that. And also, one more thing I wanted to say. We can't know what the very last second of someone's life was like. We can know what we can physically see or what the police report said, but we don't know what it feels like for someone's soul to leave their body. We have no idea. I mean, people have reported a great sense of peace, even in the most horrific tragedies, as they've had near-death experiences. So we have no idea what actually went on. And to reframe it as that at the end, people are in peace. Yeah, well, we talked about, honey, we have to go to break, but uh, we did talk, uh, Heidi and I talked before about she was in a head-on collision, and as you saw the light, Heidi, you found peace, right? I was absolutely in peace. The horror horror was when I actually woke up and was surrounded by firefighters, et cetera, trying to get me out of the car, Mm -hmm. not as I was leaving the car. That, That was a place of peace. Yeah, isn't that interesting? It just happens automatically. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, well, let's take an email. We have uh, actually have a chance to take a couple of emails while, uh, before break. I wanted to take, um, well, she calls herself Delicate, Delicate Thunder, and she said her son Michael uh, is 29 years old and he died, and he had seen a horrific automobile accident, and people, she felt like it had never been dealt with, and people gave him Xanax and all sorts of things, and uh, apparently he took his own life, but she didn't feel like it was really suicide because she felt like he never got the help. Mom felt like her 29-year-old son, Michael, never got the help that he needed. And this is her, her thought at the end. She says, the confusion, the turmoil, and the hell you live in after losing a child, that god-awful emptiness, I feel awkward. But the last, last few words I thought were really different. I feel different. Hmm. Hmm. And I wondered if you could comment, what if we do feel, it sounds like alienation, what if you do feel, feel that kind of alienation, not part of the world? Well, I think that ultimately that's coming from having a model of how life is supposed to be, and it turns out to not be that way. And, um, you know, it's why I think groups like Compassionate Friends are so wonderful, because it goes back to the issue of not being alone in the world. You know, how and not many, feeling different. Right, yeah. I mean, how many people, millions, billions of people there are on earth who feel alone in their suffering, who have had, how many millions of people have had children commit suicide, and that feeling of it, it wasn't supposed to happen, it shouldn't have happened, it could have been avoided somehow. You know, that is, you know, I hate to say it, but in a certain sense, that's the, the pathway to hell is to think this could have been different. Well, theoretically, yes, but it isn't. And That's it's, right. No it matter how much you think it could have been different, it isn't going to be different. This is this is the reality we have to deal with. Well, I want. Thank well, you. again, I say um, make sure you get John's book. It's a great read. 
and uh, it's got good stories, but it's got tons of, of really good advice for you. And, you know, you can dip into it, too. You don't need to start on the first page, do you, John? No, no. I, I, you know, it's interesting how many people tell me they don't read books from start to finish. You know, they just pick up, open them up wherever they like. So, and I always find that you know, there's something magical that can happen. Sometimes you just open the book at random, and there's the message you needed right there on the page in front of you. Absolutely. Well, the one that jumped out for me are the noble truths. You the want to talk about the four noble truths in the first one? Sure. Well. Uh, the Four Noble Truths are, they were actually the first sermon that the Buddha gave when he became enlightened. Um, when he was asked what he learned from his experience of enlightenment, he said, well, first of all, that life involves suffering. That's the first noble truth. And, you know, it's interesting that, that Buddhist teachings have become so popular in the United States in recent years. Because we're a culture who, uh, we were founded on the idea that you could avoid suffering. <laughs> and we'll, we have, an, you know, an almost infinite number of ways of doing it. But the fact of the matter is we can't. And that's what all your listeners have found out in a kind of often harsh way, that you can't avoid suffering no matter what happens. And Buddha's point was, you know, well, if you take that as the first noble truth, it isn't to say that life is going to be miserable. It's to say that the path to happiness is actually to understand that you're going to have suffering sometimes. And to, because, you know, as we said earlier, if you get caught in the idea that I'm a victim of something that shouldn't have happened and never happened to anybody else on earth, then you're really stuck and you're alone and isolated. But when you start to realize that this is part of human life, there are parts of human life we just don't like, and they seem unfair, and that's just the way that is. Right, so and there are a lot of people out there feeling that life has treated them unfairly. Sure. You know, I, I want to... Um, uh, did you want to make any more point about it? Because I want to go on to another email I've got here, because I think sure. it kind of connects with it. Okay. Um, this is an email from Marcy, and she said she stumbled uh, onto this site looking for some answers or someone to chat with. And, and she's really answering another person, but I think it's interesting what she says at the end of this email. Um, Marcy said her 43-year-old uh, husband died, and uh, he died May 1st, 2009, and, and we're very sorry to hear about all that, of cardiac arrest. And she says, this is interesting, I do not believe in counselors. Hmm. So chatting with people who have been through this is my only outlet. Mm-hmm. I thought that was really interesting because I read your, in reading your book about counseling, because a lot of our folks out there wonder, you know, uh, the immediate thing that people say is you've got to get into therapy. Yeah. Well, you know, oh, you've got to get somebody. You've got to, you've got to get a therapist. And then you've got to go on antidepressants. Yeah. You know, because well, this is I, really going to work. Like and, I, and John will probably say something to this effect, but I think it depends on how big your support system is. Yeah. If you don't have a support system and people that are there for you to hear your story and, and meet you where you are, then maybe you do need counseling. I mean, if you have a great support system, you might not. Yeah, well, uh, John had kind of a, a, a take in his book on, on the direction counselors should, should go. Do you want to talk about that? I thought that was interesting. Well, I think that, you know, one thing is that um, that <laughs> it sounds funny, but where we get lost is in thinking that the, the, the mind it has some inherent substance to it, and we can pull it apart and put it back together, and it'll all be fine. I think that really the, the key 
whether it's counseling or group counseling or group dynamics or a support group, generally, I think that what your, your listener said in her email uh, was really profound about making connection with other people. That's really the thing that heals. You know, what I find that's very interesting to me is when I do a, a grief workshop and I bring together a group of people who are all grieving terrible losses in their lives, many of whom have come there feeling totally alone and feeling that there's something wrong with them because they feel the way they feel and they haven't been able to get over it. And, you know, we'll take a break. It seems to me that often the most profound stuff that happens in the workshop happens during the break when people start talking to each other and then exchanging phone numbers and addresses and things like that. And sometimes I'm tempted to just sneak out the back door (laughs) (laughs) and just allow people to start reaching out and helping each other because that's really the thing that turns the corner. And, you know, you, the, the important thing is that you're finding a way to receive love back into your life and to give love. If that happens in a therapeutic environment, that's great. You know, if it, wherever it happens, it's going to be helpful. So I don't want to, you know, demean the process of therapy because it can be very helpful at times. But I think the most helpful thing when you're going through a profound loss is to surround yourself with opportunities to give and receive love. Well, Heidi and I have said, and I think one reason, uh, I always feel that you need to go to a counselor, if you are, that understands grief and loss, right. because I think they join with you yeah. in, in a different way, yeah. and they're not picking apart. I remember I went to a therapist after Scott was killed, and he wanted to talk about my childhood. Yeah. It was very bizarre, yeah. and, you know, he, and he was very good and very well-known. So, Heidi, do you have a, uh, any thoughts on this? I have a very similar, that was my experience. Yeah. Where I went in and, and was with a the therapist that was kind of not meeting me where I was, and it just was not a good fit. And we're always saying, shop around and if you're, if, you know, until you find a good fit, because you want to find someone that you can collaborate with on this journey and that understands what you're going through. Exactly, yeah. And that person may be someone, you know, who hasn't even finished high school, let alone, you know, Mm-hmm. Uh, who has graduate degrees, which we all have, <laughs> so, right. you know, and they have their place. But, you know, uh, I remember um, when I was in an undergraduate school, there was a, uh, one of the professors in the uh, psychology department was putting together one of the first peer counseling um, hotline and, and crisis centers. And he was just bringing in, he was looking for people in the community who were known to be the ones that people went to when they had a problem, you know, a compassionate listener who had wisdom and experience. And and that's very interesting. Yeah, and uh, and I bet some people were like, oh, you don't want to do that. Right. You know, of course. Most people don't know. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) It's like, I said to one of my friends, it's like, uh, like, People who've lost family members, a spouse doesn't know anything about spouse loss, or a parent doesn't know anything about parent loss, or, you know, it's like saying that people who go to war, people who don't know more about war than people who go to war. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's kind of fascinating how we divide. You know, it's it's so interesting in the world of the Internet, isn't it? Yes. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, it's it's facilitating connections that were never possible before. 
And you can find people that have had such similar experiences. Right. Right. Um, rather than general experiences, even though, even though the other piece is, even when I find someone that has had the death of a brother, maybe at the exact same age I had, in the same way, our experiences are still different. Sure. Yeah. Well, you know, the, the, um, that's always a challenge when we're doing this work because we want to acknowledge that everyone's loss, everyone's grief is unique mm-hmm. in a certain way. But it also, the experience of suffering and loss and disappointment, that going back to Buddha's point in the first noble truth, that's just part of human life. So we all know emotional pain. We all know the pain of loss and disappointment. We all know not being able to have what we want all the time and what it feels like when we get something we don't want in life. And some people have had more profound experiences of that than others. But, you know, most of us will catch up eventually. You know, something's <laughs> going to happen somewhere along the line. I, I like that thought. Most of us will ca- catch up. Yeah, because uh, we're all going to die. Yeah, yeah. If, if you live long enough, you're going to have multiple losses in your life. Yeah. And, you know, what's interesting is I noticed early on, because I had all this stuff in my childhood with alcoholic parents, and then my mother died when I was 18, and... Mm. Um, you know, I had a very sad life, and it was a tumultuous household, and all my grandparents died, and just all this stuff. And at, there was a point at which, when I was a teenager, I felt, you know, that feeling of being alone, and why was I singled out for all this terrible stuff? Then I started to realize that many of my friends I was in high school with had the same kind of stuff going on in their homes, but nobody talked about it. You know, I want to, uh, now, John, tell people again uh, your website. The website is onesoulonelove.com. So you're going to want to go to John's website and link up with him and find out about all the things he's doing and get his other books, too. So, uh, John, when we went to break, you were telling us about a little bit about your childhood, and it fits so well into uh, talking about uh, uh, Sunshine. Let's see. Where is your email? Oh, yeah, Sunshine. Sunshine sent us an email. My mom died a little over a year ago, the first week of my senior year of high school. Mm-hmm. And she says that she's been fighting cancer for four years. She said, I am so mad at everything and everyone. Uh, I can't help feeling robbed. And then she talks about going to her high school graduation and the hardest thing. It was so hard. And she said, there's another boy in my class who'd lost his father to suicide around the same time. And we weren't particularly well acquainted or anything, but we locked eyes and hugged mm-hmm. each other long and fiercely. Mm-hmm. And I knew at that moment that we were thinking the same things. Mm-hmm. how our weddings and child's births, children's births would be just like this, graduation, bittersweet and dampened. Mm-hmm. And then she says at the end, it goes on, she's a wonderful, wonderful heartfelt sunshine. And at the end she says, why that empty chair is a killer. My family is pretty large and we all have our spots and we sit at the dinner table. She sat right across from me. That empty chair is a killer. So, Sunshine, sounds like, John, you recognize some of those things that happened to you in your life. Yeah. Well, um, I say that fill the empty chair with love. Uh Mm, I like that. It's the same solution to every problem, really. (laughs) In a certain sense, we could say that the solution to every problem we have as human beings would be more love more love in our personal lives and in the world at large. And, And I think. The recognition at that age 
that um, life is not all happy, happy, happy all the time. And the recognition that shared grief is one of the most extraordinary bonding agents, if you will, between human beings. It, it causes connection. Earlier in the show, Heidi, you mentioned working with uh, families from 9-11 mm-hmm. who lost people on 9-11. And it's eight years later. But, you know, the most extraordinary thing to me about the days and weeks after, immediately after 9-11 was how connected people felt, how lovely, <laughs> really, the atmosphere in New York City and surrounding areas was for a short period of time where there was so much greater friendliness and kindness and generosity of spirit. And it was like, in the face of this terrible tragedy, I felt like, you know, living just outside New York, I felt like I was living in heaven. You know, and yet I could look across from where I live. I could see the smoke billowing out of ground zero, but I could feel this thing that connected everybody, and it was a connection forged in shared loss, in shared grief. Well, I love Sunshine talking about looking into his eyes. Yeah. And she did not know him. Yeah, because you see something, there's a depth in there, there's something you recognize that most people who haven't felt the deep, deep sadness and loss that you felt, um, you recognize it in other people. Well, Sunshine, I want to say you are a beautiful writer, and uh, you're now probably about 19 years old, and keep up the writing and keep filling that with love and keep reaching out. I mean, you've enriched us today with your email, and thank you so much. Heidi, do you have any comment on that? No, I just want to second that, Mom. I agree with you. She's... An amazing thing. And she's touched a lot of lives today with her email. Absolutely. John, uh, have you got a couple of tips for people out there who want to, what comes up, you know, quickly, who want to fill that chair with love, or do you have anything that can help them quiet their mind right now? I know we talk about meditation, the monkey mind. Mm -hmm. Well, I think that first and foremost, because meditation can be another, you know, big chunk to try to bite off and chew when you're in the midst of a terrible loss. But what you can do is find ways where you can sort of naturally meditate, which would be to get out in nature. You know, one of the things that I see people do when they are experiencing the depths of despair after a loss is to close themselves in their home, pull down the shade, sit in the dark, you know. And so my first recommendation is pull up the shades, open the windows, get the light into your life, and then get out into nature and feel just the rhythms of nature, someplace where it's quiet, where you can sit and watch a river or a lake or the ocean. You can feel the breeze on your face. You listen to the birds singing in the trees. You get the feeling of the natural world and your connection with it. That is one of the quickest ways to get through the kind of aloneness and isolation and desperation you feel. There's not even, you know, I'm going to say it, go hug a tree. (laughs) With animals, you know. Oh, yeah, you were talking about animals. Yeah, animals are so wonderful. They give you unconditional love. Yeah, yeah, And, and, you know, it's amazing. I know so many people who have dogs and cats who... They say, you know, my my cat or my dog knows when I'm upset and curls up next to me and kisses me and just loves me. And, 
you know, so those kinds of things. And then I would say some exercise, you know, just walk, a brisk walk would be wonderful. Um, these seem like simple things, and, and because they're not intended to make your problem go away, they're intended to add a new dimension to your life, which is where you can experience moments of peace and happiness and contentment in the middle of this storm that you're going through right now. Mm-hmm. And then I would say maybe there will come a time where you can try some meditation practice, but even before that, you might take a yoga class where um, you're just stretching your body in a way that uh, is getting some of the, the tension and stress and tightness and the rigidity that's being caused by the anger and the suffering and all of that. It's another way of letting it go, and well, that can be great. John, thank you so much for being on the show today. And have you got any parting words for our audience out there? Just that in this time of transition to the new year, recognize that every day is a new day. And even though you wake up in the morning and feel that the loss is still with you, you also have your breath, you have your life, you have your own ability to see, to smell, to touch, to taste, and to love. Uh, That's the most important thing. Great. Thank you so much for being on the show today, John. Oh, thank Thanks, you. Thanks, John. You have been listening to Open to Hope Radio. You can sign up for our newsletter, Facebook, and Twitter on our homepage at opentohope.com.